You're listening to Take as Directed, a podcast on global health policy and the news, events, issues, and the people it affects. The problem is the world is in a shortage of vaccine. How to empower and strengthen women is the role that maternal child health and nutrition. Because stigma, shame, and fear is what drives this disease into, and keeps it in the dark. I'm Steve Morrison, director of the Global Health Policy Center at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington, D.C. In this podcast, you'll hear conversations led either by me or by my colleagues, Sarah Allender, Janet Fleischman, and Nellie Bristol, who serve as recurring hosts. We interview leaders fighting against malaria, polio, HIV AIDS, the opioids epidemic, some of the biggest public health challenges of our time. In this episode, I sit down with a close friend, Lena Sun, an award-winning national reporter for The Washington Post, who focuses on public health and infectious diseases, both here at home in the United States and abroad. Lena has been covering the anti-vaccination movement in the United States and its relationship with the surge of measles cases being reported across the country. She's also examined this movement globally. Lena talks to us about the anti-vaxxer movement's evolution, its genesis, and what are the levers for taking action today, both at the state and federal level, but also within industry and social media. Lena, thank you so much for being with us today. Let's start by asking you to describe what the anti-vaccination or anti-vaxxer movement is really about. How did it become what it is today, what was once known as just a fringe group of those who reject scientific evidence around vaccinations, suddenly evolve into what we're talking about today? Particularly, how did it mushroom into where we are in the last 10 years? So the modern anti-vax movement really dates back to a discredited and fraudulent study published 20 years ago that falsely linked vaccine for the vaccine for measles, mumps, and rubella to autism. That paper was formally retracted a decade ago, but the damage was this done. This is the Wakefield study. This is the Wakefield study. And it led to a very steep drop in vaccinations in the United States, in Britain, and other parts of Europe, prompting a rise in these measles cases. In more recent years, it has been energized by comments from Hollywood personalities and prominent U.S. officials, starting with the president, Donald Trump, and most recently, Darla Shine, the wife of White House Communications Director Bill Shine, took to Twitter to claim that illnesses such as measles, mumps, and chickenpox, quote, keep you healthy and fight cancer, close quote. That, of course, is patently untrue. Her statement prompted a lot of concern from public health experts who say that just repeating these claims and having them echoed on Twitter and other social media causes public harm. And that brings me to social media, which these anti-vax groups have been able to use so effectively with emotional stories. It, they resonate personally with many parents who are on the fence and just want to do the right thing by their children. But these days, everybody goes on the Internet, you type in one thing, and the algorithms pull up all of these, there's hundreds of them, anti-vax groups that purport to all sorts of things. And 
while there have been scores of studies from around the world that have shown conclusively that vaccines do not cause autism, it's often not a satisfactory answer for many groups, you know, because you can't prove a negative. And in many communities, the hesitancy is specific to that group. In Minnesota, when I covered the Somali Mm -hmm. um, measles outbreak, the Somali parents really wanted to know, well, like, okay, if it's not caused by vaccines, what is causing my child's autism? And so if you don't have a good answer to give them for that, the default is much easier to accept this other claim that is false. And so I think pediatricians and some folks are trying to combat that and say, okay, there's a growing body of evidence that suggests that brain differences associated with autism start really early, you know, prenatal. And what happens is that often these syndromes don't manifest themselves until a kid is about two years old, which is often around the time when you get like the measles, mumps, and rubella vaccine. Um, so I think it's, it's, it's a combination of factors. Trust, belief in science, trust in government, This must be a factor. This is. I mean, in the times that we live in right now, where there has been an erosion of faith in science, an erosion in public health officials, this must be something that makes the ground more fertile for this, I would think. I think it's interesting to note that this is not just an American phenomenon. So vaccine hesitancy is a huge issue now around the world. Um, the WHO this year listed vaccine hesitancy as one of its top 10 global threats. And um, Heidi Larson, who mm-hmm. is a professor of anthropology. We know her very well. Yeah. And she does really great work. And she's actually trying to understand the cause of vaccine hesitancy says that in Europe in particular, you've seen the rise in these alternative health practices such as naturopathy and homeopathy. And this this purity sentiment is also seen in these anti-GMO, anti-chemical movements. And so this sort of goes back to that primal instinct that she's talking about, sort of rejecting science, rejecting medicine, preferring nature, preferring religion. In the United States, this is... um, something that is often embraced in communities that are white, well-educated, affluent, with mothers who are intensely focused on their kids and who have time to go to public hearings and, and testify. Take, they don't need to take a day off from work. And in California, for example, it's part in, on the West Coast, it's part of this, we want to feed our kids organic food, we don't want to vaccinate, and it goes to this 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 idea. I don't think it's a wholesale rejection of science because I understand from social scientists that these people also believe in climate change. So it's not a wholesale denial. And some people may not be denialists around vaccines. They may they may delay. They may be cautious in the way that they take them up. They may wish to have more control over the pacing and schedule. Right. And that actually is just as dangerous because, you know, people who don't understand how immune systems work might think, oh, my God, I don't want to get all of these for my kid at the same time. That's a very common belief. And I wrote an entire blog post about why this is a bad thing. If you think about it, a baby in the womb is in a completely sterile environment. Soon as the kid comes out, the kid is subject to billions and billions of bacteria from dust, from anything on the surface. So the body is making an immune response. Giving a kid vaccines is 
not going to put the kid over because the body is already making that immune response. But it's a very potent argument with many people, and lots of parents ask their pediatricians for a delayed schedule. The reason why a delayed schedule is bad for public health is then those schedules are set up in a way to give you the maximum protection for when the kid is most vulnerable. You delay it, it hurts the kid. It also hurts the larger community because then you're not vaccinated and you're not protecting people who are too young to get immunized or people who have compromised immune systems who are on chemotherapy. Two quick points. Um, It seems to me that the anti-vaccine movement has the power of a couple of things. One is the power of a story of individuals. The autism, my child is autistic emotionally, emotively, that's very powerful. Simply throwing scientific facts out doesn't do very well. And finding a way to begin to get control over the debate, it seems to me, has become one of the biggest problems that we face in this entire thing. Yes. I think part of the issue also is you know, vaccines are, this is a result of the success of vaccines, right? Correct. We eliminated measles in 2000. So people don't see cases of measles. You ask any doctor under a certain age, they don't know what it looks like. When I was in Minnesota and they had the measles outbreak, people were taking pictures of what these kids with measles look like because they hadn't ever seen it on people with darker skin. So you don't see the disease. You don't hear people talking about it. And then you fall into this belief of the tropes that are out there that measles is a benign disease. Measles is not a benign disease. Before it was eliminated, three to four million people would get sick. 400 to 500 people would die a year. And there is a rare um, complication of measles in young children that does not manifest itself until the kid is much older, in their late teens or early 20s. It is 100% fatal. And the chances of getting it is one out of 682. There's no treatment. Most of the outbreaks that have taken place in the United States today have been U.S. travelers who go abroad to countries where measles is endemic, where there's huge measles outbreaks. There are a ton going on in Europe where it's a popular tourist destination. They bring those cases back. And if you're in an unvaccinated community, measles is one of the most infectious diseases on earth, period, full stop. You walk into the CVS and you have measles or you're infected. Two hours later, I walk through, I'm not vaccinated. I have a 90% chance of getting infected. But these sort of safety and science stats are not something that are going to resonate with the average parent. And and U.S. public, public health officials have begun to realize that they can't just stand there and spout safety statistics. I don't think there is a good strategy in place to deal with this. Um, Many people have said that still the most trusted person is the pediatrician or the doctor. And you need to arm those clinicians, those nurses, with the best social research tools on how to reach, how to meet these parents where they are. Don't look down on them. Don't judge them. Talk to them. Answer their questions. In Oregon, where there is a very strong, well-funded anti-vax movement has been there for years. There is a group called Boost Oregon that does education, and what they do is they hold seminars, and they bring parents in without any judgment and allow those parents to ask questions to doctors for as long as they want. One by one, they change people's minds, or not, but those people don't feel judged. We also know that there needs to be national leadership. 
right? There needs to be voice and how that happens in terms of the expressions, the messaging. It needs to be delivered not just once but many times. It needs to take the form of perhaps a commission or something, a campaign, something that brings in others from the media, from the faith community, from other elected officials. We know that states, when they can get their legislatures and their governors aligned, they can begin to tighten controls over exemptions. And that that can also be a battleground because a lot of the anti-vaxxer movement we've seen has the capacity to finance a lot of elected officials at the state level. So those are two really good points. And John Weissman, the Washington State Health Secretary, has made exactly that plea for a national campaign, much like the campaign against smoking that the U.S. government launched very successfully decades ago, that it has to be on that level. It needs to be spearheaded by the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, and it also has to be supplemented with additional funding for states to do more of this work at their level. And recently, we saw top three public health officials, Brett Girard and the U.S. Surgeon General Jerome Adams and CDC Director Robert Redfield had an op-ed in the New York Times talking about this. That's not enough, though. That can't be the national strategy. And there needs to be something more coordinated, as Dr. Weissman has said. Now, it just so happens that Jerome Adams, the Surgeon General, is out in Oregon and Washington. But the only way you would know about it is by reading his Twitter feed. There wasn't a media advisory. There was there doesn't seem to be sort of a concerted effort at that level. And I don't know if there will be because in some ways, nationally, the immunization rates have stayed about the same. They're pretty good. It's these pockets. It's these hot spots. And each one of these communities has a different reason for the vaccine Mm -hmm. hesitancy, so it might be hard to devise a national strategy. But many public health officials say that is what's needed to call attention and to really focus on the problem. At the state level, I think there is – you'll see a movement now this year for the first time where a lot of states have introduced legislation to make it harder for parents to opt out. And why is that? I think it's a couple of things. First, you have measles outbreaks going on in six states. Already this year, there have been more than 200 measles cases. That's more than the entire year of 2017. And people remember that last year was a really bad flu season. Children died. And this is sort of filtering through, I think, at the individual state level. And also at the after the midterm election, a lot of lawmakers who were very strongly supportive of anti-vax um, theories were voted out. So you have a change politically. Mm-hmm. In Maine, for example, there is a bill that has bipartisan support and lawmakers say that it has a very good chance of going through and getting signed because you have a different governor. Um, in Arizona, even though there are many more bills to loosen these restrictions, there was a bill that was introduced for the first time to tighten. Now, that bill died, but it's significant that it was introduced. But it's also significant that the freshman lawmaker who introduced that bill was targeted and in the public hearing uh, her measure was likened to um, the Holocaust and she was compared to a Nazi and she is Jewish which she found truly offensive. So lawmakers in the past there I think have 
tended to maybe shy away from this issue because they know that they will be a target of email campaigns in Washington state where there are two bills now moving through the legislature to tighten, make it harder for parents to opt out. Lawmakers have received death threats. They have been stalked. At public hearings, the majority of people who show up are people who are opposed to the measures. But I was talking to a Stanford law professor. She made this really good point. The majority of Americans support vaccinations, so that's their behavior. Their behavior is an expression of support. They don't need to show up at a public hearing, and that's what governance is all about. You know, lawmakers should just be able to see that and do the right thing. Another lever that we have is to appeal to those who control social media, the most powerful tech firms, to engage in much more careful self-regulation. If misinformation is such a strong force in all of this. And like so many other areas where we've simply lost sight of the power and the scope of of campaigns, the disinformation campaigns, in this case, much more, it seems to me, can be done there. Now, Pinterest has jumped forward, taken a position, laudable position, but it seems to me a lot more needs to be done in that area. I think that is absolutely true. And if you just focus on this 18-year-old teen, Ethan Lindenberger, who testified before the Senate panel yesterday, he was so poised, so articulate, and so clearly defined the problem that his mother was well-meaning, but she was manipulated by all the stuff that she read on Facebook. She got all of her information from Facebook. He tried to combat that with studies he'd read uh, from the CDC and other places. He learned critical thinking skills in debate club and from his teachers, and he was not able to convince his mother. He was able to convince himself, and he realized that he needed to be fully vaccinated, and he did so. But he spoke so eloquently about the frustrations of that. Now, Facebook, Pinterest, um, YouTube, and even even Amazon have taken steps to limit that content. Um, but as Rene DiResta pointed out in a really good article recently, those algorithms are – it's like whack-a-mole. So if you prevent people from seeing the documentaries on Amazon Prime, there's still a way that stuff gets surfaced through their ratings reviews. So if you give something, a book, a one-star rating, it's going to be a proxy. It gets pushed way down. But if you give something a five-star rating, it's going to be pushed up. So she said that this – if you look at the books that spout all sorts of health disinformation, um, quack cures for cancer – a lot of them have five-star ratings are the things that you see first. Peter Hotez, who has written a very good book, there's been a campaign. On his autistic daughter. On his autistic daughter and how vaccines did not cause her autism. There's been a campaign to give his book one-star review, so it's at the very bottom. Now, as you point out, here in the United States, in the first two months of this year, we had over 200 cases of measles. Six states, I believe? Eleven states Eleven states. Where's the trajectory? on this in your estimation? Because once you do have outbreaks, it changes the political equation dramatically because suddenly it's real, it's expensive, it's dangerous, it's fear-inducing. There are other consequences too. In Clark County, Washington, 
which is the bedroom community of Portland, Oregon, which is the epicenter of the Washington State measles outbreak, which accounts for one-third of the measles cases so far reported this year. This is Oregon or Washington? Uh, Washington State. Yeah, yeah but they're, it's like a bedroom community of oh, Portland. Okay. 800 kids have been kept home from school because measles is so infectious if there's one child who's diagnosed in that school and you cannot prove to the school that your child has been infected, uh, that your child has been immunized, you got to stay home. So Totally that, disruptive. Totally disruptive so that kids not getting education, not going on field trips, um, parents, you know, parents staying, staying home. home. And there are some public health experts who say that, you know, what will it will take um, is for a child to die. So the statistics are that for about every 1,000 infections, one or two children will die. Uh, yesterday, there was a case of measles reported in San Francisco in an adult who had traveled. Um, and you see these popping up. And maybe if it gets to enough big states, lawmakers will need to deal with this because it's become a political issue. It is. It has bipartisan support. At the Senate panel hearing uh, this week, it was very clear from Republican and Democratic um, members, they all support this. Um, and there was a very interesting exchange between Rand Paul and Bill Cassidy. And Rand Paul said, you know, I believe in vaccinations for my children, but I don't believe in we should impose this government this mandate. This is the libertarian. The argument. libertarian. And Bill Cassidy, who is a Republican but also a physician, came right back and said, you know, there should be consequences. If you don't want to get your kid vaccinated, then your kid should not be allowed to go to school, period. Did you have any other strong impressions from the uh, proliferation of hearings and statements coming out of the Hill? It's very striking. We haven't had anything like this in a very long time. There was a hearing. They did hold hearings after the Disneyland um, measles outbreak. Um, and so... But I thought it was interesting that there was this high-level attention. The House had a hearing. Uh, Senate had a hearing. The Senate Help Committee has asked the CDC for uh, several responses on what they're doing to boost vaccine acceptance and confidence. I think there is bipartisan support for something that could actually have a huge impact on many of these members' home districts. Because it costs so much money. You, in Washington, they have put so many resources into this measles outbreak. There are all these other things that they are not doing. Food inspections, sewage inspections, um, uh, nursing visits to high-risk families um, to, help, to help moms with newborns. All of these things are put on the wayside. And as we know, funding for state health departments has been level. In other words, it has not grown. So – you know, all you need on top of this is a big flu outbreak. Do you think this raises people's appreciations of the need to invest in preparedness for outbreaks? Probably not enough. I see that among the state health officials, and um, but I don't sort of see that at the at the individual community level. It is very focused, and it unless state health officials can really make their case to the federal government to increase that kind of funding, you know, I, I don't know if that will actually happen. Um, there are a lot of immunization programs that have just been level funded, and the state health secretary, John Weissman from Washington, was saying there needs to be like a 22% increase so they can just do this basic job and do a better job. Otherwise, we it's not just measles, whooping cough, 
mumps, um, you know, in Maine. That's why the Maine lawmaker introduced his bill. Maine has the highest pertussis rates in the country, and it's because of vaccination gaps. So, you know, maybe there will be a movement coming out of the states. The Washington legislature, I think, will pass something this year, and that will be a strong sign to the other states, I think. Um, Every year, there is always more legislation that is put forward by the anti-vax supporters than there are for people supporting public health. But there was a very interesting study done by a Drexel researcher last year that found that even though it's a lopsided, the bills that actually become law are the ones that support public health. You have this uh, wackadoodle bill um, put forth in Texas saying, you know, use antibiotics to deal with measles. You know, hello. It's like a basic level of understanding in science. It's a virus cannot be cured with antibiotics. Those tend to not fall by the wayside. And um, well, it would be interesting to see if there's any legislation that gets passed this year to tighten vaccine restrictions. It would be the first since 2015, since California and Vermont passed them. I would think also that the governors and the National Governors Association will pay much closer attention to that. Exactly. And so in Washington state, you saw the governor declare a state of emergency in January when the number of cases was 25. And it was a way, because there's a regional compact, to leverage resources from other states. So they needed help from North Dakota and other states because conducting one of these outbreak investigations is so labor-intensive. You have to interview every person, find out where they were, who else they were in contact with. And because measles is so infectious, any place that person was, you have to post it. So these cases were all in like big places that get a lot of people. Portland Airport, Trailblazers game, Costco, Walmart, churches, schools, more than three dozen places. All those people have to be interviewed. And so they had to pull people off of other duties. They had to get in help from other states. The state of emergency has not been lifted. And it has already cost Washington state over a million dollars. I think they estimate it's about $17,000 a day just in the state costs, not including the county and not including people who have to take off from work. And there was a paper done last year that was kind of prescient that talked about the hot spots in the United States where children, high number of children entering kindergarten had not received their MMR vaccines. And Portland, Oregon area was one of the hot spots. Well, I think we've covered a lot of ground here. And thank you for all the great reporting that you've done on this. I think your reporting is just sterling. We all read it great interest. And I think you've done us a great service by delving into this from all the different angles that that you've brought to this. So thank you for that. And thank you for being with us today. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Take As Directed, featuring Lena Sun, a national health reporter for The Washington Post. We invite you to subscribe so you never miss our latest episodes. If you want to learn more about upcoming events and our work, please visit the CSIS Global Health Policy Center program page. 